Hello and welcome to the podcast for the October 2008 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here with uh, TLID's editor John McConnell. Welcome John and a few items to cover this week. Let's start with something that always seems topical and that's um, flu vaccination. But specifically, this is quite interesting, it's actually discussing the value of stockpiling flu vaccinations in preparedness for a pandemic flu. Tell me more. Yes, Richard. Well, what's happened in the past few years is that people have been working on vaccines specifically against the um, avian influenza H5N1 strain. And research and development has reached the stage where um, vaccines have started to be produced, which appear to be cross-reactive against several different um, H5N1 strains. It appears now that it may well be worth stockpiling some of these vaccines and uh, being prepared to give them to certain key workers um, in anticipation of a, uh, of, a, of a flu pandemic. And is this, do you think, part of a proper, if you like, you know, organised strategy for preparedness for pandemic flu, or is it scaremongering? It does smack of scaremongering a bit. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's a reasonable arm of the preparedness strategy to consider, because what we have to remember is that we won't have a vaccine precisely matched against the pandemic strain until several months after that pandemic strain has emerged. Because you can't produce a precise vaccine until you know what type of virus you're dealing with. So these vaccines, which are being worked on at the moment, are, uh, as I've said already, are cross appear to be cross-reactive against quite a broad range of, um, of, of flu virus, flu H5N1 virus strains. So they won't produce perfect protection against the their, against the H5N1 strain, assuming that turns out to be the pandemic strain. They won't produce perfect protection, far from it. But there's a very good argument for saying that um, if you give this vaccine in anticipation of a pandemic, then the people who've received the vaccine will have some level of protection, however imperfect it might be, and therefore will be um, protected to some degree, um, against the, the pandemic flu strain. I think the way that this has to be used is that not rather than giving it to the whole population, which I don't think would be either practical or cost-effective, is perhaps thinking about giving it to key workers, healthcare personnel, exactly what they call first responders, so that they have some level of protection if they are exposed to a pandemic strain. In the meantime, um, we might buy some time for ourselves in order to, to develop a vaccine precisely against that, uh, the, the um, the pandemic strain which does emerge. And imperfect though that sounds, is there enough evidence to, to back up the fact that some protection would be would would become available? The only evidence you can really accumulate is um, from is immunological evidence. So all you can do is you can immunise these people, you can give them the vaccine, and you can see if they uh, develop a any sort of meaningful immune response against them. What, of course, you can't do is you can't uh, experiment by exposing them to flu virus strains. That would that would be rather uh, unethical. This is an example of a, um, a uh, of a vaccine trial where you have to rely on immunological markers. You can't actually rely on protection against uh, illness or death as your endpoints. And the final thing, just picking up on how and who should be targeted by this type of campaign. You mentioned frontline healthcare workers. Would you also include other vulnerable 
other vulnerable groups like elderly people, etc.? I'm not sure I would because um, there's a whole debate going on anyway about whether the, um, the the elderly are really protected against seasonal flu by the current vaccines as as well as they are they are supposed to be. So, and I'm not also not entirely convinced that it's the elderly that will be most at risk. Uh, in the event of um, of a pandemic, the um, the evidence from previous pandemics is that in in some cases it's actually young people who are who are more at risk, and it does very much depend upon what the uh, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase types are that are in whichever pandemic strain turns up and causes the pandemic. Thanks, John. Moving on, you've got a review. Uh about tumour necrosis factor, TNF, and this is to do with the emergence over the past decade of human monoclonal antibodies uh, as a strategy for, for, for dealing with a variety of diseases, obviously particularly in relation to their immunological function. Can you just outline briefly how, how, how these uh, agents operate? This review is about um, TNF antagonists. TNF is a key factor in the immunological reaction um, so it's involved in the, um, the development and uh, modulation of inflammatory cells. So what TNF antagonists can do is that they uh, appear to have um, therapeutic value, quite considerable therapeutic value in inflammatory diseases uh, such as um, various types of arthritis and psoriasis. So in the last 10 years or so, these TNF antagonists have been used uh, for treatments of um, arthritis and, and psoriasis. However, um, because TNF is itself key in the immune process, if you in some way um, to- turn down that immune process, then you may run the risk that the immunity won't work so well against infection. So the, the key issue here is that uh, it appears that people using TNF antagonists have a greater risk for the re-emergence, particularly of latent tuberculosis. And this can be something like 10 or 20 times uh, higher risk of of latent tuberculosis re-emerging in people who are using these drugs than it is in uh, untreated people. So this is is a real genuine risk and there have been uh, many cases and case series of tuberculosis, latent tuberculosis emerging in people who are taking TNF antagonists. So do the authors of this review have any sort of conclusions or recommendations for what we need to do? They've actually compared the various different types of drugs and um, they've found that the, uh, the risk of re-emergence is, is quite considerably greater for, um, for, for some tri- types of drugs than it, than it is, is for others. So, for example, there's a, um, um, there's a, a TNF antagonist called infliximab uh, and it appears that the risk of uh, uh, tuberculosis in somebody taking infliximab is considerably greater than it is in another different type of TNF antagonist called etanercept. So finally on this one, John, if we know this, and it's obviously an, an important observation, what, what do we need to do to prevent it happening? Well, the first and essential thing to do, of course, is to screen people for um, latent uh, tuberculosis infection before they start taking these drugs. And um, it is possible to screen them by, um, by you can do chest x-ray, you can uh, give them a, a tuberculin skin test. They're, they're quite c- crude and imperfect ways of detecting latent TB. There are some, there are some more, um, more precise immunological tests, but they're not yet in particularly widespread use. But you certainly need to screen people, and if they are showing any indication that they have a latent TB infection, then you can uh, treat them with antibiotics before they are given their, um, their TNF antagonists. And finally, John, let's end uh, with the front of your journal, The Leading Edge, this month's editorial. And this is looking again at the ever-topical issue of hospital-acquired infection 
reductions. I read today in a UK national newspaper that the UK government has met its target on reducing MRSA in hospitals. So what's your editorial saying? This very issue was one of the uh, topics addressed in this, uh, in this Leading Edge editorial. Um, so um, the, the UK government had set itself the target of reducing MRSA, in, uh, particularly in hospitals in England and Wales, by 50% over four years. So one of the topics we discuss is um, how they appear to have actually moved the goalposts in, in achieving this target. But, you know, you could argue, reasonably argue that they're only a few months off the target they originally set themselves, and they, they've done quite well. Uh, and let's hope that they maintain the momentum in uh, reducing the, um, the incidence of MRSA infections. One of the other triggers was a new initiative in the United States where um, patients who are getting Medicare payments or uh, patients getting Medicare payments for their care in hospitals um, will, um, the hospitals which are caring for these which taking the Medicare payments will not receive additional funding um, if the patients get a particular type of hospital, particular types of hospital acquired infections um, while they are while they are under hospital care. So this is really a way of encouraging hospitals to be uh, to take much greater care in preventing the acquisition of of hospital acquired infections. It's a it's a financial incentive um, to to do something about um, the. Um, uh, the, the growing concern with with hospital acquired infections. It is very much a um, um, a United States initiative at the moment, and would only similar initiatives are only really going to work in healthcare settings where um, where individuals or, or sorry where individuals pay for their care or as in Medicare, the state pays for an individual's care, and you don't have universal universal health insurance as you do in the um, as we do in the UK. But I think providing a financial incentive for, to hospitals to do something about healthcare associated infections is um, is, a, is a way of tackling the problem that, that needs to be explored. And I'm sure this very issue is going to be discussed at an upcoming conference in two months' time. Nice Q2. Something you're organising, John. Tell us about the conference.